Good morning, Mercy Road. How you doing this morning? You were, you were the brave ones. Made it out. For those attending online from different parts of the world, it was negative four degrees this morning here in Indiana, and you all made it to church. Uh, you know, not to mention it's a holiday weekend, and, and we just want to thank you so much for coming out and worshiping with us, and we can't wait to see what God does during our time together. In fact, uh, you know, for some of you, it's been a, a hard weekend, at least for me. Uh, first of all, the Colts didn't make the playoffs right, and then I'm rooting for the Browns yesterday. Wasn't a good day for the Browns. Uh, you know, Mercy Road has some connection to the Browns, some of you know about, and it was a hard day. And then, you know, I was watching that, that game in Kansas City, and Andy Reid had like that frozen mustache. And I was like, these people are crazy. Why is it so cold there? And then wake up this morning and we're like the new Kansas City, right? Like it's been a, a, a weird weekend here in Indiana, but it doesn't matter if it's negative 20 or it's 95, the same God that created us, loved us, and redeemed us is with us here today, isn't he? And what I want to get into this morning as we continue our theme for 2024, which is follow me. Jesus told the disciples, come and follow me. It was a very simple command. What does it look like to actually follow Jesus in a 21st century culture that often finds the things of Jesus contrary to the worldview in which we live? I believe that he is just as relevant today and the most important thing for those of us who believe that Jesus gave his life for us so that we could know God, believe the gospel message, that following him is the most important thing you can do with your life. And didn't Pastor Nate do a great job last weekend talking about following the leader, like the basic command of a disciple, of a learner of Jesus? And this week, I want to take it a, a, a step further and talk about if you consider yourself a Christian, do you only follow Jesus in reputation or do you actually try and do what he did? You understand what I mean? Like, you ever meet somebody that have a certain reputation and you believe that reputation about them, but you don't actually know them? You don't have a relationship with them? You're not trying to emulate them. You just know about them. And I want to be, we want to be a church that is followers of Jesus, not just in reputation, but in action, word, and deed. And here's what I find for those of you that are here with us this morning that may not be Christian. Maybe you were drugged to church this morning. Maybe you weren't sure uh, about the things of God, but you're intrigued in a higher power. I want to tell you one of the reasons I follow Jesus is because of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. And I believe if we saw Christians live out what the Bible actually teaches of how to follow Jesus, we would have more people with their questions not only answered and intrigued, but actually desiring to follow Jesus the same way that you are. That's what I want to turn about, uh, turn to in the Bible. We turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. As you're uh, turning to Matthew 9, at the heart of this, and I'm going to be honest with you, I've been following Jesus since I was 19 years old. And over time, you can find things begin to get a little stale in your faith, a little stagnant. Uh, you peaked and, and now you're, you know, just hoping to still be a Christian by the time you die so that you go to heaven. You're not looking to make any grandiose adventures in life anymore. And I want to challenge that concept this morning as well. 
For those of you who are here and I, that maybe your faith has become a little stagnant, I want to ask you the question, have you lost the joy and excitement of life, of what it looks like to follow Jesus? Because when you see what Jesus actually did, how he actually lived, it's earth shattering, man. It's so different to not only how most humans and most Americans live, it's actually very different than the way that most people who attend church and consider themselves Christians live. And that's what I want to look at. Are you ready to study God's word together, church? Come on. It, It says this in Matthew chapter nine, verse nine. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, Matthew will become one of the first 12 disciples of Jesus. If any of you have watched the series, The Chosen, they have a unique way of uh, demonstrating the life of Matthew, which could or could not be accurate, but I found it very intriguing to see that Matthew was a little bit different. He, he was not the one that would have been the at the top of the food chain for the people that would have been invited by a good uh, God-fearing rabbi. He was a tax collector. And we don't even really have a comparison in our culture of what a tax collector is like. You might think of the IRS, but the IRS are good people too, so I'm told. (laughs) But Matthew actually wasn't just taxing people. He essentially had sold out to their oppressors, the Roman Empire, and was forcing people to give funds, your grandmother, forcing her to be taxed, above and beyond, giving it to their oppressors, the Roman Empire, and then taking some off the top, becoming wealthy in their culture by selling out. I don't even, I was trying to think of a great example of that. It really, none of them did it justice. Matthew in the Jewish community would have been as hated as anyone. And Jesus went from where he was and saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He's literally working the booth. And what does he say to him? Follow me. That would be like going up, if you're as a follower of Jesus today, going up to one of the most hated people in the community who is known for being the farthest from the things of God that you could possibly imagine, and going up to that person and not beginning with a conversation starter. There's, there's no theological conversation, even philosophical conversation. He's like, comes up to him, hey, follow me. No, like right now, like leave the booth, and I want you to come and follow me. Isn't that like strange? But, but Jesus had this way of entering into people's lives rather than requiring that they first understand everything about him. He says, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. There was something so intriguing about Jesus' life that he literally got up and just started following him. I can't even imagine that, that somebody walks up to you And you're so intrigued with their life, there must have been something so full of joy. It must have created a response in Matthew that he just couldn't stop himself from getting out of his job, his career, giving everything up and following Jesus in that moment. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. The next verse doesn't get any simpler. He doesn't just tell this tax collector, come and follow me. Jesus then goes and invites himself over for dinner and has dinner at Matthew's house. Again, think of the most hated non-Christian person in the community. Uh, You may know them. I don't know who that person is. Don't point him out. 
You know, the, the reality is Jesus went to dinner with the very person that every single person in their community would have assumed something was wrong. He, Jesus, just by doing this, is putting his entire reputation on the line. Look, look what it says next. He's having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees were the educated Jewish community that were well-respected, that knew the letter of the law, and they're saying, hold up, wait a second. This doesn't add up. This rabbi shouldn't go and eat with these people. He puts everything, his reputation on the line. Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the wealthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. This is important there. We're going to break that down. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I asked you earlier if you'd lost the excitement of life, and I want to ask the same question now, just slightly different. Have you lost the joy and the excitement of following Jesus? Because Matthew and the early disciples learned very quickly that he was somebody worth following because his life was so full of joy. And that's what I want to demonstrate to you. Will you pray with me? God, uh, first, just pause and thank you for uh, all these people that came out in the freezing cold, little icy out, and that they decided to come and to worship you. And for the the people attending online right now from different parts of the world, Lord, that they've put aside this time to connect with you and your word and to worship you. And so we acknowledge the presence of your Holy Spirit with us right now. God, I pray that you would speak to us. Take my words away, replace it with what your spirit desires to communicate through scripture to us. That we might follow you in the way that you want us to, even when it's hard, God. And with this weekend, as we remember tomorrow, Martin Luther King Jr.'s, uh, this day, God, will remember that there was a time that not everybody was equal. And even today in our culture, there are many issues of race that still plague us. And so, Jesus, we just acknowledge your presence here. We pray that this would be a space of healing and reconciliation and joy, the the life that Jesus demonstrated to us, that we might hear and see one another, be willing to learn from one another. God, I pray for those in this room that maybe came in and are hurting, God, that you might speak to their soul about what it looks like to find joy in you. We pause and we worship you. And we thank you and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you speak to us. It's in your name that we pray and all God's family said, amen, amen. I don't know if I've ever told most of you, I've shared this, I think once or twice, of how I got into ministry. You know, when I was 19 years old, I had a friend who was a fraternity brother of mine who was slightly older. At that time, I was in the fraternity house, throwing parties, doing the things that young people people do who aren't following Jesus in those spaces. And I can remember he had the audacity to invite me, instead of going to a party, to go with him to a campus ministry. And I went with him, and the 
the preacher uh, got up and spoke about Jesus and gave a chance to respond to the good news, the gospel, right? And, and I responded, and, and I meant that because I knew that my life didn't line up. I had known about God and reputation, but I had never followed Jesus with my life. And that day, I committed my life to him, and then I did the thing that you do sometimes. I, I kind of share this, and I don't usually share this with you know people under 18 in a room, but the reality was I had been drunk for three days, and I was the next two to three days after I made the decision. And all of a sudden, for the first time, I began to get conviction in my life that that was not right. That wasn't okay, that this was not only breaking my life, it was dishonoring to this relationship that I now had with God. And so I decided I wasn't going to live that way, and you know, I, I repented, and I, I never drank again until I was 21, and I began to say, God, I want to live differently. And I went from throwing, uh, you know, the parties in the house to leading a Bible study uh, for the fraternity with the, some guys who were older than me in the fraternity house, and I knew nothing about the Bible. The Bible studies were really interesting. We, we literally, we would read a passage, and then uh, someone would ask a very difficult, deep theological question, and then the response was the same every time. I don't know. Yeah, that was pretty much the Bible study. And then we'd be like, well, let's all look that up. And we'd like take the week and we'd look it up. And then we'd come back and be like, oh, I found this and I found this. And I probably weren't always getting it from the best sources. And I would have lead a Bible study different today. But man, I'll tell you what, when you have honesty, when you're studying scripture, we began to grow in our faith. And it's interesting how the spirit can lead you sometimes. And, and I share that with you to say that I was somebody who was pretty far from God, and it took one person being willing to have the audacity to invite me to a campus ministry, which had to have felt a little strange for them because, you know, it's not like the coolest thing to do sometimes. It wasn't just that. God has a way of orchestrating these things. There was another guy then, after I had began to follow Jesus and was leading a Bible study and knew nothing about the Bible, who invited me to come and work with them for the summer. There was this incredible communicator and artist that came to our college campus and did this presentation that really spoke to me. I went up and talked to him afterwards, and he said, hey, I have internships this summer. Why don't you come and do an internship with me? That guy's name was Ben Glenn, who became our youth pastor here at this church 20 years later. God has a way of putting people in your path. I went with Ben to this uh, this high school uh, camp in the summertime down in Tennessee for three weeks. And I was supposed to be there learning uh, how to not only follow Jesus, but I was supposed to learn the software that was supposed to help with his animations and his art show. I usually meant that I got out the manual of how to do these things and I fell asleep on the couch within 10 minutes. That was my internship. So Ben was like, you're the worst intern. Why don't you come with me down to Tennessee and actually do something meaningful and minister to these high school students? So that's how I ended up in Tennessee. And when I was down there, I began to see God use my life in ministry. And I stayed longer than I was initially supposed to. And after that, I knew that's how I was wired. And before long, I found myself doing ministry, started a, a ministry for high school students in the town I was in, in college, got involved, led a small group at the, the ministry on campus, began to think that I was called into ministry. I went to seminary largely because I had all kinds of theological questions I needed answered. That's just my story. 
See, I don't know what your story is when you go from like cognitively believing in God and, and following the reputation of Jesus to actually following him with your life. Not everybody is called to, to be a minister in a church professionally and as a career move, right? Like that's not a real great career move, by the way. But, but all of us are called to be missionaries and, and disciples of Jesus that make disciples. All of us. If you know Jesus, the good news, we are meant to share that. And what you see often is that most Christians uh, love the concept of knowing the perfect God, but actually following and living out the life that Jesus lived is scary to them. And so if you're here today and you're saying, okay, what if I actually tried to start following Jesus in my life? What would that look like? I want to show you in Matthew chapter 9 what that might look like. And you may find yourself one day ministering to high school students like I did. Or you may find yourself today go, eventually being called to go to another country. Or you may find yourself going into the homeless community in our city. Or maybe you go into the schools here in Carmel or Hamilton County and beyond. Maybe God has something he begins to pull you into, but it's going to require that you actually follow him when he asks you to do it. That's what Matthew did. And we have his gospel today in scripture because he chose to follow. If you're going to follow Jesus, here's three simple things that you have to do according to Matthew chapter 9. If you're going to follow Jesus today, number one, see people. <laughs> you're like, uh, well, I got that one down. I see all of you right now, right? Like, what does that mean? What do I mean when I say see people? Look what Jesus did here in Matthew 9 verse 9. As Jesus went on there, he saw a man named Matthew. How many times do you in your day get so busy that you're interacting with people, but you don't actually see them? Can't remember their name, don't know who they are, but he saw a person named Matthew. He took the time to see him and actually interact with him. I love how Donald Hagner, a, a, a scholar that writes especially on the Gospel of Matthew. He said this, since Jesus' mission is predicated upon mercy and not merit, no one is despicable enough by the standards of society to be outside his concern and invitation. The tax collector is the last person a good rabbi is supposed to see, let alone spend time and talk to them and interact with them, let alone go to dinner with them. But he saw Matthew who are the people in our culture today that people often don't see, don't interact with, afraid to talk to? Might say that some might be social outcasts, and we can certainly think of that. Those of you that are in high school or college, your students, you can see that often, that person who has no one to talk to. That's the very person Jesus would find himself talking to. The person in our culture that maybe acts differently or thinks differently or looks differently, has spiritual questions, he would find himself talking to him. If I'm honest, I think that most of us, when we follow Jesus long enough, we get to a point where we stop doing some of those things, of actually seeing people, interacting with them, right where they are, tax collector and all. In fact, you know, um, 
This morning's sermon is not about, about race. We understand tomorrow is an important day, and some in our culture and, and even in our church over the years have wondered, why do we talk about things of race? Isn't that something left up to critical race theory or things that aren't from Scripture? And I'm not here to support any ideologies out there, but we teach the Bible, and the Bible says that God created every human being in his image, and he loves every person individually. And Jesus always saw people and heard people, especially when they were hurting. And I, don't, I always say this every year on MLK weekend. First of all, some of you may say, well, this is the weekend. Nate should preach. No, it's, it's not Nate or any uh, pastor we've had over the years who was black. It's not their job to talk to white people about racism. That people like me should be able to have the courage to speak about those things. And if you want to talk about a people group that often feels not seen, it's often those who have had issues of racial injustice uh, pushed upon them. And certainly the black community, but we could go beyond that with people of color in our culture. And I find it interesting how it got so angry there for a while that we stopped seeing and hearing each other, all sides of issues of race. And I just think, man, you look at the life of Jesus, and he was never like that. It wasn't about division and about the other and about how they're different or wrong. He was about seeing and hearing and feeling and experiencing and loving and compassion and joy. And so, man, with this weekend, I think it is very important for us as followers of Jesus and certainly for those of us who have grown up in white suburban culture to be willing to see people right where they're at, including their hurt and their pain and their suffering. Not to judge that, by the way, because uh, my family heritage was not enslaved for the color of my skin for hundreds of years, ripped away from my families, taken across to another continent, and then told to get over it within 100 years. It doesn't work like that. We hear and we see and we love each other and we act with compassion. That's the life of Jesus. It's not just issues of race either. He was somebody in every way who, when somebody was in pain, he was, just, he was drawn to them, right? When somebody's physically hurting, he was like, hey, I want to come and heal. He had this way of going to the Matthews of the world that everybody overlooked. What's the one thing Matthew doesn't have? He's got resources. He's got power. What does Matthew not have? Friends. He, he didn't have any Friends. What does Jesus do? Hey, why don't we all come over to your house and hang out tonight? Right? Like, that's, that's how Jesus lived. He saw people. He didn't judge them. He ran to them and entered into their life. Number one, if you're taking notes, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to see people. Number two, if you're taking notes, you have to enjoy people. Now, some of you are like, okay, I'm out. I was with you till then. I don't enjoy people. Man, I find, if I can be totally honest, like the older I get, the harder this is for me. It just, I mean, because some of you just, you know, we all have people we don't enjoy interacting with. I get it. I'm not saying that you have to love every moment with every human being you ever interact with, but Jesus had this joy about him. And I have to challenge myself not to become this cantankerous old man who who constantly judges people before I know them. And we all know people like that, right? I'm not even judging you if you are that person, because I know some of you are in this room right now. 
but to actually love and, and find joy in human interactions and relationship. If you're going to follow Jesus, you have to live like that. Look at verse 10 with me again. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. He actually had a party with Matthew and and brought some buddies over with him. He enjoyed interacting and having a good time with each other. I mean, think about that. The most hated person in the community and he threw a party for him. That's how much he enjoyed interacting and hanging out with people. By the way, we're all called as Christians to actually live like that in our sphere of influence. We use this phrase around here, the Greek word for household, which is oikos. And oikos is the eight to 15 in your sphere of influence that God has supernaturally placed there to minister to them, that you may be the only version of Jesus they ever see. And you, you get the opportunity to enjoy that mission. And some of us, we look at it as duty rather than I can't wait to do this. Jesus gives up in this moment when he interacts with Matthew and when he does stuff like this, he gives up his chance at power and popularity by embracing sinners. Now, look, I'm not telling you, uh, we've said this a lot, we're a hospital for sinners. That doesn't mean it's the morgue for sinners where you come to spiritually die and never change and keep wallowing in your sin, right? The goal is to change. Come as you are, but don't stay there. That as you interact with Jesus, he transforms you. You get healing in the hospital and you become different and live, right? He says, repent and turn from your ways and you begin to live differently. But he had to start with actually embracing and going to those sinners right where they're at. And he gives up everything to do it. I've always remembered this story. Um, It was from a, a Christian Uh, Tony Campola, who I I don't always agree with everything he wrote or thought, but this particular thing, I think, fits this passage. And he talked about how one time he was in Hawaii uh, to speak. And he got there because of the time change. It was late at night. It was three in the morning. And so he needed a place to eat. So he went to this diner that was, he's like, when you think of like the dirtiest, greasiest diner you've been to, like this was it. Like he was afraid to order something off the menu. What's really happening here? And then a couple of people started walking in and their uh, interactions with one another were very rude and coarse. And, and there was some words that he wouldn't repeat in church. And And in that moment, he thought, maybe I should just get up and leave until he heard this one woman say that today was, or tomorrow was going to be her 39th birthday, her 39th birthday. And the other woman was like, do you want me to do something for you? And she's like, no. And he realizes in that moment that these women who have come in were actually prostitutes and that this woman is talking about her birthday party and, and, and that she's never really had a birthday party. And so they left, and he began to get convicted, evicted, felt the Spirit of God was speaking to him. He went up and he talked to the owner of the diner, and he said, hey, um, do you know those two, two women that came? Yeah, they come in every night, and while they have a rough life, they, they actually are very kind people. And, and he said, well, I was thinking, I heard she said that tomorrow is her birthday. What if we threw a birthday party for her in this diner? He's like, do they come in every night? Yep, every night, same time. So he's, he said, okay. 
Let's do it. And the diner, who was not a Christian person, was like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, my wife would love that. He goes back, tells his wife. They come back. They start interacting. He's like, I'll be back tomorrow at 3 a.m. and I'll decorate all this stuff up for you. And you just tell anybody that wants to be there. And then he's like, and I'll bring a cake too. He's like, and the owner was like, no, the cake's mine. That's my thing. I'm going to do the cake. This is going to be awesome. So he comes back the next night, decorates the diner, and all these people, the word got out that Agnes was her name, was going to have a 39th birthday party. And so they all came in early to surprise her. 3 a.m. in the morning rolls around. In comes Agnes and her friend to the diner, and they all jump out surprised, and they bring out the birthday cake, and she's just in tears. And, and she says, before you cut the cake, could, could I actually just hold on to it for a second? And they're like, yeah, whatever you want to do. You know, we don't even have to serve it. You, you can take it if you want. And she's like, wait, I, I can take it? And she's like, yeah, I just live right down the road. And she just walks out of the diner and takes the cake back to her apartment. And everybody was silent. And he talked about, like, I didn't know what to do, so I just prayed. And he prayed for Agnes and her faith and all this stuff with a room full of people that hang out with prostitutes. And I get done with the prayer, and the owner of the diner said, uh, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. Like, what, what, that was different. What are you doing throwing a party like this? He's like, what kind of church are you a part of? And he's like, I'm, I'm a part of the church that loves Jesus. And he's like, yeah, but what, what kind of church? He's like, well, the type of church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the local diner. He's like, no, you're not. That doesn't exist. If that existed, I would want to be a part of a church like that. He's like, yes. This is actually how Jesus lived and interacted. You know, I always think about that story because the reason she took the cake home, they found out later, is she'd never had a birthday cake in her life. And she was so moved to tears about it. And I wonder how many people in our community didn't have the love that some of you had growing up. Or maybe never experienced it later in life. Maybe you didn't have a great childhood, but you experienced the joy of knowing Jesus, his love, and others that don't have that. And they wake up every day feeling all alone, like nobody cares about them. I don't know about you, and I'm not saying that everybody in here is called to that type of ministry, right? Like for some of you, that probably would not be a good thing. Be questions if you were throwing parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in diners. But the reality is, Everybody in here is called to see people where they're at and to enjoy demonstrating the love of Christ to them. I want to show you in Scripture that type of joy that Matthew experienced there from Jesus. Look at John 3.23. It says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. It's talking about the church's relationship. This is the bride with Jesus, the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom awaits and listens to him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. I meet so many Christians who do not have the joy of knowing Jesus in their life. We know about him in reputation, but we don't have a relationship where we've experienced his joy, his presence in our life. Now, we're certainly going to have moments where we're not happy or we're not experiencing joy, like when you had to walk outside this morning as negative four degrees. But you're going to know and have remembered those moments where you've experienced that type of joy. I think as followers of Jesus, that's how we're meant to live. 
Okay, now I talk about sports a lot, so I want to nerd out for just a second. For the nerds in the room, you ready? Okay, I have read all of the Tolkien books. I'm not just talking like The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. The Silmarillion, my favorite. Like, I get into all that stuff. So for the three of you that know what I'm talking about, I want to tell you, like, I realized as a young man that Tolkien was writing in those books about his Christian faith and that the hobbits and why Frodo Baggins was chosen for the ring was because he had enough joy in his life he could withstand the temptation that came with that. And I've often thought about that as Christians, when you look at those movies and the way the hobbits interacted with each other, and they are always about throwing parties and interacting and the joy with one another, that that's meant to look like what Christian community is meant to be like. The joy of knowing Jesus and the joy that, uh, intera- that uh, carries over into our interactions with other people. Look, it's not just in that passage where it talks about when you know the bridegroom, you're going to have joy. Philip the evangelist goes to the city in Samaria and he heals the lame and he casts out demons. And then in Acts 8, 8 it says, so there was great joy in that city. When Jesus shows up, joy came with it. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now look, I'm not telling some of you cranky people to fake it, okay? But what I'm saying is that when you know Jesus and you have the Spirit of God in your life, there should be this underlying joy of knowing that you are not alone anymore and your interactions with other human beings begin to change. You don't see them as competition or people out to get you or like the world's against you. You now start seeing that the God of the universe that created you created them in your image and you don't have to judge them before you know them. You can get to know them and interact with them and find the love of of Christ in any human relationship. Now, that's only if you want to follow Jesus. And you can find plenty of church attenders who don't actually want to follow Jesus. But this is how he lived. He lived with the joy of knowing other people in his life, throwing parties for tax collectors in their homes. He didn't just do it for Matthew. He did it for all kinds of people because, number three, if you're taking notes, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to show grace to people. Look, I believe that we have to have both grace and truth, that loving Jesus is both grace and truth. And, and certainly in our culture, uh, truth often doesn't want to be heard by people who don't know Christ, right? Like there's plenty of things that aren't uh, lining up with biblical truth in our culture that people do. But I want to talk about the other side of that coin for just a moment, which is grace. Jesus had this way of showing grace to people right where they were. Look at verses 11 to 13. When the Pharisees saw him, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why? Because they jumped to judgment. They didn't lead with grace. Look what happens on hearing this. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice, which is a quote from the Old Testament, by the way. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's from Hosea 6.6, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's what Hosea 6.6 says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God 
rather than burnt offerings, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they they wanted to come offer a sacrifice of a burnt offering of this animal getting what I deserved, which was something God gave them as a way to worship, to draw near to them. And, And we don't have to do that any longer, praise God, because of the ultimate atoning sacrifice of Jesus. But But what they're saying in that Old Testament was even back then, if you wanted to offer a sacrifice, but you didn't want to show mercy the way that God shows mercy, then you don't understand what it means to worship God. And Jesus is saying to them now in the New Testament, he's saying, look, guys, to the Pharisees, you jump to judgment. But if your truth doesn't also require you to show grace and mercy to people, then you actually don't know God. You just know him in reputation, not in following his desires for your life. That's why in Micah 6.8 in the Old Testament, it says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To know everything and judge people who don't know it. No, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What if this morning, some of you began to pray about in our culture for those who often are, feel alone, who aren't seen, that you actually see them, that you love and interact with them, and then you show them grace. What if you actually threw some parties for some people who need that experience? What if you just walked across the, the lunchroom or your workplace or the office space and interacted and said hi to somebody and actually got to know their name and what they were about. Jesus went to and loved people right where they were at because he led with grace in his life. Let me give you just a few interactions. We'll put them all up there. Jesus in the house with Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Jesus within the house of Zacchaeus. Jesus in the house of Matthew. Jesus in the house of Simon the leper. You didn't do that. Jesus in the house of the Pharisee too. It was both sides, not just uh, the side uh, that we're looking at here. He even went to the house of the Pharisees. Jesus at the wedding of Cana knew how to throw a party. Jesus at the house of Jairus. Jesus at Peter's house. Jesus sending the disciples out to other people's houses. Jesus, or excuse me, Peter and Cornelius in their house encounter. The Lydia, the woman who will start the church in Philippi, that they went to her house. They had this way of going to people's actual lives where they lived and interacting. Jesus set the examples and the disciples after him followed that and continued to live that out. And today, if you want to do what Jesus is asking you to do, which is follow him, it's going to require that you leave your comfort zone and go to where people are and love them and actually enjoy interacting with them. Who right now in your life that you know you could reach out to and just go, hey man, how you doing? Maybe somebody who you know has spiritual questions or isn't a Christian or is going through something difficult recently and just say, I just was praying and I thought, man, I I need to reach out to you. How are you doing? Close with this in Matthew 9. I see that chapter after it starts with Matthew's house. It ends up here in verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. It's what he does. He goes to people. He heals them right where they're at. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I don't remember being in line at Disney World and having compassion on people, but Jesus in the crowd even had the ability to do that. 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. People want healing. People want to know the love and joy and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. People desire that. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. I share all this to say that if you're going to put into practice what Nate shared last week to follow the leader, I'm going to challenge you today to say, hey, it's not going to start someday. It's going to start today. And it's going to start by me not just taking, but giving back to the kingdom. By going, who could I be used to minister to? The harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of hurting and broken and lost people. But the workers are few. And so I'm going to stop judging and complaining. And I'm going to start getting in the game and taking some action to address the issues in our culture and say, God, use me as your missionary, as your disciple. I don't have to travel 10,000 miles around the globe in a year to do this. I could just start in my community right where I'm at to love hurting, broken, and lost people. Will you pray with me? God, I wonder who today, just like me at 19 years old, maybe somebody's here today and they're 85 years old. And for the very first time, they're gonna go, I don't just believe in you and reputation. I actually wanna follow you and live the way that you lived. And so if that's you in the room, pray this with me. God, I repent that I've been living life the way I want to live it rather than actually following you in the way you demonstrated to live. And so on this day, January 14th, 2024, I commit not just my life to you and receive salvation, I commit to make you Lord and to follow you wherever you lead me in this year. I'll go where you go. I'll love who you want me to love. I will interact with who you want me to interact with. I will demonstrate grace and not judgment. Use me, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name and all God's family said, amen, amen. Will you stand as we close and worship together? And maybe you want somebody you want to hit your knees and pray for this morning, or you want to receive prayer for somebody. Our, our new prayer room, which is much quieter and has plenty of space back there, uh, we invite you to join us in the prayer room if you'd like to pray together. But let's worship.